so we find ourselves now in verse 30. This, this week was a very tricky one to know where to break, break it down. There's, a, there's, a, there's a, uh, a continuum of thought, really, that runs through to the end of the chapter. And it was tempting to try and do the entire rest of chapter, but I opted out of that. Um, and we're going to do verses 30 to 37, and then we'll finish off chapter 9 next time. Um, and then we're into chapter 10, and at the end of chapter 10, I'll talk more about this in a moment, we have a very definitive break of flow and purpose to Mark's gospel. Everything changes in chapter 11, but we'll talk about that in a minute. So we're, we, we should all be there now, chapter 9 and verse 30. So let's, uh, let's read, let's pray, and let's study. They went out from there. And he, uh, and sorry, and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they'd argue with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and he called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we study your word tonight, you would enable me to teach your truth. May the truth be clear. May the truth convict us by the power of your Holy Spirit, and may the truth change us. May you do your work amongst us tonight, we pray. Amen. Okay, so, just to give us a bit of context and a bit of flow, we are into, towards the end of chapter 9 now. We've had the gospel begin with the start of Jesus' ministry, him preaching the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God was a concept communicated by the Old Testament prophets that they, the disciples, and those around them were very familiar with. But the offer of the kingdom of God was taken away because the Jews rejected Jesus as their Messiah. The leadership decided that he was possessed by the power of Beelzebub. That's how he did his miracles. And uh, that rejection of Christ was the, what Christ calls the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. An unforgivable sin, not an individual sin committed by individuals. Any individual could repent and be saved but a sin by the nation of Israel, meaning that that generation no longer would be the generation of Israel that would see the kingdom of God come in. And from that moment onwards in chapter 4, Jesus starts teaching about the kingdom of God in a different way. He's not teaching them about the kingdom of God on earth with him ruling and reigning as their king and Messiah. They've rejected that. He's now teaching them about how the kingdom of God will be with him as king and Messiah, not for Israel as a whole, but for the remnant. And as the gospel slowly hints at, 
Also, those from outside the camp, the Gentiles, people from other nations who will come and be part of the, those who will enjoy a form of the kingdom, a spiritual kingdom, if you like, in the time before the physical kingdom is set up. And as he goes through from chapter 4, he's teaching about that. He then keeps the uh, teaching of the kingdom away from Israel as a whole. And he really begins training his disciples. And one thing that, uh, that whole training of the disciples section, really halfway through it shifted. And it shifted with uh, Peter. It shifted with Peter, where Peter ends by confessing that he is he, Jesus, is the Christ. And Jesus is the Christ, he's the Messiah, and it shows that Peter is saved. It shows that Peter can see. And just as the leaders of Israel had represented Israel, so Peter is essentially representing the, the disciples here in that they believe in him, but like the man, the blind man that had just been healed immediately preceding that, the disciples uh, were partially blind like the blind man was partially healed and he saw people but they looked like trees. He couldn't make out the details. Um, in the same way, the disciples could see but they couldn't see very clearly. It's going to be important as we move forwards now. And so the nation as a whole were under the judgment of Isaiah 6. They were, they were blind, they couldn't see. They were deaf, they couldn't hear. They were under a judgment because of rejecting what they could see. And in the same way, although the disciples could see, their sight wasn't clear. And so there was a blindness and there was a deafness regarding them as well. Not one to prevent them from receiving Christ, not one to prevent them being saved, but one to keep them very much in the dark as to what was going to happen. And so, when we pick up here in verse uh, 30, we're coming to the end of this section. And really, once Peter, as I said to you at the end of chapter 8, once Peter has confessed Christ as, as uh, Messiah, once Mark, as the Gospel writer, has shown us that uh, the blindness of this man is, rep or the partial blindness in the midst of healing, is pretty much where the disciples are, Jesus shifts his teaching. He's still teaching the disciples. He's still teaching the disciples, but now he's trying to teach them something different. Up to this point, he's been teaching them about the changed nature of the kingdom of heaven. But now, he's trying to teach them the next level of how different things are going to be. Specifically, he's been trying to teach them about his death and resurrection. That's what we're going to pick up in verse 30. Okay? And just as much as I've given you the background leading up to verse 30, just skimming ahead a little bit, we're dealing with some very similar themes here now. There are themes that go along with the death and resurrection of Christ. We're going to see today this theme of who is the greatest, of humility, of, um, of the last being first and the first being last, that kind of thing. The, the receiving children, these kind of things go hand in hand with the humility of Christ. And we've been studying very recently in Sunday mornings with our studies in Ephesians, uh, I keep saying Ephesians in the morning, Philippians chapter 2. Um, 
And so this whole rest of this section in Mark 9 and going into Mark 10 is really teaching the nature of, well, the practicalities of the cross, but how the nature of the cross affects discipleship. I showed you that back in chapter 8, at the beginning of chapter 9, where the whole point of the deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me is, look, here it is, guys. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to die. And I'm going to rise on the third day. You're going to be my followers now? Because if you're following me, that's where I'm going. And a lot of these things, like, you know, I think sometimes we think that these stories and these teachings are random. They just oh yeah, we'll, just th we'll throw that one in here, we'll throw that one. It's nothing of the sort. When we get in chapter 10 in two weeks' time, when we come to the teaching about, on Jesus about divorce, which is very countercultural and is an important lesson, it's in the context of humility. It's in the context of this new level of discipleship where we follow in Christ's footsteps, where we're prepared to endure, we're prepared to suffer for the sake of Christ. And then, of course, we have, you know, we have more children coming to him. And then we have the very famous story of the rich young man who comes to Jesus. And again, that is almost like an accumulation of people coming to him and this, this nature of discipleship in light of the cross. If Christ is going to the cross, then those who follow him are going to have to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow him. And then we have James and John's request about being at the right hand in glory, showing that they still don't get it. So Mark then throws in, um, oh well, he, Mark comes to a conclusion pretty much there, which is that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And that is pretty much the conclusion that we're building up to, the crescendo that we're building up to of Jesus teaching the advanced discipleship in light of his upcoming death. And then just to finish off Mark 10, Mark throws in one more healing uh, of a blind person just to continue to illustrate this concept of blindness and the discipleship training. And then when we hit chapter 11, everything shifts. It's no longer talking about how he's going to die. The procession to Jerusalem and to his death begins in chapter 11. So we've kind of now coming, we're kind of midway through this section of advanced discipleship. Jesus training the disciples uh, so that they would see discipleship in light of his forthcoming death. Now I give you all of that introduction, all of that surrounding context, because it will make moving through this a lot easier. So in verse 30, they went on from there. And uh, this is immediately after the incident where the, uh, the uh, mute demon was cast out. And they passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know. Well, what didn't he want, not want them to know? He didn't want anyone to know that he was there. He was trying to keep away hidden. Why was he trying to keep hidden? And it says, for, that's our reason. For he was teaching his disciples. So we're kind of, we're rushing towards chapter 11. We're rushing towards him going to Jerusalem. And he has an urgency now in teaching his disciples about what's going to happen in Jerusalem. About what's going to happen to him. 
And so he doesn't want to be distracted by a whole bunch of other people coming along and saying, hey, heal this and do that and this, this and do this and help with this. And oh, Jesus is here. Let's all go and see Jesus. Let's see what, what he does now. Because he's got a purpose and the purpose is the training of those disciples. Now, before we even go on to the training, this is a really important concept for us to get our heads around. Some people find this really, really easy and some people find this absolutely mind-numbingly difficult. And I think it's just a character trait thing. I think some of us are more inclined to have a problem here and others of us are more inclined not to have a problem here. But this is, a, this is an important lesson for some of us to learn. And that is this. Sometimes we have to say no. We have to say no. We have to say, look, you know what? I can't do that. But why can't you do that? If you don't do that, then these people are going to lose out. This problem is going to happen. It's specifically saying, and get your head around this, Jesus is coming into Galilee and he doesn't want them to know. If they do know, what are they going to do? They're going to bring sick people to him. And if they have faith, as many of them will, he'll be kind of moved with compassion and he'll be, feel obliged to heal a bunch of them. Right? So by hiding his presence, he's preventing people from being healed. That's really difficult for some people to get their heads around. Now Jesus, in eternity past, could do all things everywhere at the same time. But Jesus, having emptied himself and come in human flesh, is now limited by that human flesh. He can only be in one place at one time. He can only do one thing at one time. And so, if he is saying, I'm not going to heal these people so I can train these people, then someone's missing out. But if he says, alright, I'll go and I'll heal those people, then the training can't happen either. So what Jesus is doing and we know ultimately what he's doing is obeying the Father. But the, the, the decision is whether it's given to him by the Father and he's obeying or whether it's him working at himself. We're not told here in the text on this particular point. But the point is, he knows that he needs to talk to these disciples about what's about to happen. And that means that there are other things which are good things, noble things, worthy things, important things that cannot be done. And there are people who, because those things cannot be done, are going to suffer more. Does that make Jesus bad? Does that make him unloving? Does that show a lack of kindness or a lack of compassion? No, 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 no. None of those things. Jesus had to prioritize, and so do we. You know, one of the ways I've survived over the years as a pastor is just, you know, in England in particular, there's this whole kind of minister mentality. They call the pastor the minister. Here's our minister, so-and-so. And, -so. and uh, because the term pastor isn't always used in, in traditional churches, it's more sort of sometimes it's reverend so-and-so, and the reverend is the minister, and they use the term minister. As we know from our studies in Ephesians, that's biblically inaccurate. The ministers are the congregation. The pastor is the equipper of those ministers. But the, the, the rate of burnout in ministry is ridiculous. 
because everybody expects the pastor to do everything. And I've learned over the years there's some things I'm good at and there's some things I'm not good at. And I get overwhelmed when I try and think about more than one thing at a time. So I have to do what I can do. I can't be who everybody wants me to be. I'm me. I'm who God's made me as I am, with my strengths, with my weaknesses. And initially it's difficult. It's difficult saying, well, you know, I'm not going to do that. I've, I've seen people walk out of churches in front of me because I wouldn't do what they thought I should do. And, you know, as hard as it is for a pastor, it's the same for all of us. It's the same for all of us. And we have to be in tune. I'm not sure I'm happy with that phrase. I might think of a better one by the end of the sermon. But we have, to, we have to be aware of what God's called us to. That isn't to say that if we're not particularly gifted for something, we just, well, that's not my gifting, I don't do it. There are some things that just got to be done. But it is to say that we can't do everything. And so what we do is we say, okay, well, I'm going to do this because this is, this is what I prayerfully and, and with the wisdom God's given, and I pray for wisdom, this is what I think God would have me do. I'm going to do this job. And there'll be other jobs that don't get done. And there should be no guilt, and there should be no second guessing. It, it's, it's a decision that has to... If Jesus has to make these decisions, then so do we. So do we. I think it's a really important thing for us to get our heads around. And again, a lot of people find this easy, a lot of people find it very difficult. So some of you are like, yeah, well, of course, what's the big deal? And some of you right now are going... Because it's just it, it, different characters see it in different ways. But for me, understanding that there were people who wanted to be healed and Jesus deliberately hid himself from them is a, is a really important concept to get my head around. Really important. And, and I think that particularly for those in, in, in pastoral ministry, you know, sometimes the training of the twelve has to trump the needs of the masses. One thing I said right from the time I was interviewed to come here was that one of my goals would be training up other people to do what I could do. And, you know, there'll come a time when, you know, I just can't be there for everybody in the congregation if we, if we continue to grow. And a lot of people think that's what the pastor should do and that they have problems with that. But... The reality is, is that we've got to train up. We've got to, you know, we've got to prepare messages. We've got to do these things. Remember Acts chapter 6, the apostles um, are there and the church is experiencing church growth at a rate that was hugely wonderful and hugely problematic. Thousands being added to their numbers. And they're sharing stuff together and they're loving one another and they're serving one another. And the people who were leading it, the, the, the apostles, are saying, well, look, we're now ending up, now that there's growth, doing all these practical things. We're, we're waiting on tables. It's not like that we're, you know, we're a bit too good to wait on tables. We're too good to serve in the practical realm. But it's, we've got a job to do, which is the word of God and prayer. 
And so we need to raise up other people to do this so that we can do what we need to do. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. So Jesus has prioritized at this stage in his ministry, ahead of the masses, ahead of the crowds, ahead of the people generally, ahead of the disciples generally. He's prioritized the training of the 12 because they need to know what's going to happen. And you know the biggest irony of all of this is the one thing he dedicates himself to, he fails in. Because they don't get it and they don't understand it. And there's another lesson. That's our second lesson, practical lesson for the night. And that is, don't be too pragmatic. Not succeeding in something doesn't mean it wasn't the right thing to do. Sometimes we've got to do what we're supposed to do and just leave the outcome to God. When Jesus died on the cross... According to Mark, as he tells his account, he's going to give us a triad. Mark's very fond of, of triads here. He gives us three occasions where he says, I'm going to die, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise from the dead. I'm going to be handed over, arrested, tried, die, bury, rise from the dead. That's what's going to happen. And then what happened? He was arrested, he was killed, he died, and he rose from the dead. And the disciples were like, what? I can't believe that happened. <laughs> he didn't, they didn't get it at all. But does that mean that Christ's teaching of them wasn't valuable? Not at all. Because when they did understand, when they saw, these lessons here become the basis of their understanding moving forwards into their apostleship, into their ministry, and into them teaching everybody else and writing things down in letters that we still study to this day. And there's lessons there, of course, for us as well. So lots of practical stuff to kick us off. Let's get into it properly now. So he's teaching his disciples, and this is what he's teaching. He's saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. Now, I'm going to be really practical here, and those who've been doing our Tuesday night studies will kind of be more in line, I think, on this one. But... I don't, I very much believe in ipsissima vox as opposed to ipsissima verba. And what that means is, is it means that when we in our Bibles see it saying, and Jesus said, open quotes, we just got to take it with a pinch of salt. There's no open quotes in the Greek. <laughs> there's no punctuation, full stop. In fact, the earliest manuscripts, there's no spaces between letters. So, in between words. So, I mean, you know, it's not there. We're presuming that. And I think also the problem with quotation marks is that we today, I might say, oh, I was talking with so-and-so, and I was talking to them, and they were kind of saying that, you know, this thing and that thing and blah, blah, blah. And I'm you know I'm conveying to you the gist of the conversation. But if I were to say to you, as in a sermon, I would say, as so-and-so says, quote, you know that every single word that follows is going to be exactly what they said. I probably have it written down in front of me. And I think there's a danger in which we, we, um, we think that Jesus is literally... You know, I think there's some people who think that Jesus is there with the disciples. They're walking down the road, and he opens his mouth, and he says, Hey, I want to tell you something, guys. 
I want to tell you, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They'll kill him, and when he's killed, after three days he will rise. And then Jesus shuts up, and then they go on the journey in silence, and the disciples are, what on earth are you talking about? And that's it. I don't think that's what happened at all. I think Mark is using these, these moments to remind us that this is what Jesus is teaching. It's unthinkable to me that Jesus says two sentences... And then he's silent for the next however many hours, or he goes talk, starts talking about the weather or the latest football score or something like that instead, you know? He's teaching and training them. He's avoiding all the other people so he can train his disciples. So I think what Mark is doing, he's giving us a summary of what Jesus is doing. Jesus is teaching them and training them. He's pointing them to Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53. He's saying, look what Isaiah said. Look how it's supposed to be. This is nothing new. This isn't something that I should be telling you. And yet it is. It's something they didn't know. It's something they didn't understand. Can you imagine? Imagine if the Bible taught that there wouldn't be two comings of Christ, but there would be three comings. Imagine if the Bible taught that Jesus would come and die for sins and he'd come and die for sins again or something. I mean, that's obviously ludicrous because his death on the cross was once for all. But we have grown up in a, you know, whether it's literally grown up physically or whether we've grown up spiritually in a church environment that teaches the Bible and Jesus comes and he dies for our sins and he'll come back in glory. Someone comes along to us and says, well, I think actually that Jesus is going to come and die twice and then a third time he's going to come back in glory. We'd be like, you crazy man, get out of here. We know our Bibles. That's not in the Bible. That's just wrong. You're wrong. And we'd be right in doing so. But to the disciples because they've been trained in Pharisaic Judaism, they've been taught a one coming of the Messiah. Only coming in glory. And the idea that a Messiah would come and suffer at all was completely nutso to them. It was completely off, it was outside their theological scope. It would be like someone coming in here with some crazy doctrine. And I was saying, what are you talking about? We know, that's not in the Bible. Where is that in the Bible? And you've got to remember, these scribes and Pharisees, they knew their Bibles far, far better than we do. So how do they get it so wrong? They were blind. Now, what do we learn from all of this? Well, firstly, always have a dose of humility. The theology you have today may not be the theology you have tomorrow. Be open, be willing to learn. Don't be so open-minded that they say that your brain falls out. You know, the scriptures are here. We are new covenant Christians. The Holy Spirit enables us to understand. And so we don't want to go with anything completely uh, out of left field, I believe is the expression that you guys have. Um, but at the same point, we just need to be humble. But I think more importantly in this context, I just want us to simply understand just the bizarre nature of this training. The disciples are coming from a background where what Jesus is saying to them sounds utterly, utterly ridiculous. And more than ridiculous, it sounds heretical. It sounds heretical. And to be trained to think very differently is not an easy thing. It's not an easy thing at all. And what Jesus is doing is he's trying to reason with them, and I'm sure show them from Scripture. 
how what he's saying is not heretical and how it is biblical. But it's so difficult for them to grasp. So difficult. Because they've been taught falsely. And guys, this is why we don't tolerate false teaching. This is why we put our foot down on false teaching. I'm currently trying to put together my History of the Holy Spirit series into writing. And I'm very aware of the importance. That I'm not writing it for a bit of fun. I'm not writing it to make a name for myself. I'm doing it because there's a need for it. And many Christians come from a background, as I came from, where all sorts of experiences would happen and they would be attributed to the Holy Spirit. In, for example, I remember going to a festival each year, uh, which one year I was even teaching at, and uh, at this festival, you know, weird stuff would happen. You know, you'd, you'd have the teaching and then at the end there'd be a bit more worship and then there'd be a time of quote-unquote ministry. And what would happen is people would, again, quote-unquote, wait on the Lord, which is nothing to do with what waiting on the Lord means in Scripture, by the way. Which basically meant they would do what most Eastern religions do and just kind of, you know, um, and just empty themselves and empty their thoughts and just, just see what happens. And then what would happen is that somebody somewhere at the back would start laughing or shaking, or making an animal noise of some sort. Which, if that happened normally, you'd say, what the heck's wrong with that person? But the person at the front, who was leading, would say, that's him. He's here. More Lord, more Lord. And what these people are being taught, and many of them come from churches where this happens every single service. That person laughing, that person shaking, that person making strange noises, that's the third person of the Holy Trinity manifesting himself. You'll never find that in Scripture. There's no evidence anywhere in Scripture of any of those things happening and the Holy Spirit doing any of those things, but we know differently. That's Colossians 2, right there in a nutshell. We've been told, we know, this is God. Paul says that's demonic. Colossians 2, if you want to go back to those teachings. And, and, and I tell you all of this simply to say this, is that what I, I came out of that background, I came out of that background of thinking, oh, that is the third person of a trinity. That's the Holy Spirit. That's what he looks like. That's how you know he's functioning. That's what he does. And the Bible knows nothing of that. And what I, what I understand is, is if you take someone who comes from that wing of the church and has been told week after week after week, year after year after year, what is the Holy Spirit? Who is he? What does he do? Oh, he's the one that makes the guys at the back laugh. He's the person causing this, this person to writhe around on the floor like they're having some sort of epileptic fit. That's the Holy Spirit. Why is he doing it? Oh, that's just what he does. If you believe that, then someone like me comes along and says, well, actually, the Holy Spirit doesn't do that at all. You're blaspheming to them. It would be like me coming to you or someone coming to me and saying, Jesus isn't God. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. My whole faith is based around Jesus being God. His divinity, his deity, is the basis of my faith. You can't just come along and tell me that this person of a trinity is someone completely different than I thought. 
But that's essentially what we're doing when we present the biblical teaching on the Holy Spirit, because they have been told this is what the Holy Spirit looks like. That's what the disciples are going through here. They have been grounded in the teaching of Scripture by people who had memorized the Scriptures and knew the Scriptures and had the Scriptures. Remember, they don't have copies of the Bible lying around at home. They're scrolls of certain books in certain synagogues. And these guys have the books memorized and they're teaching them and they're saying, this is the Messiah. He's the one who comes in glory. And then Jesus comes along and says, actually, that's not the Messiah at all. That's not what this is all about. The Messiah is actually the one who's going to come and suffer and die first. And then the glory comes afterwards. And it's like, you're changing my entire world here. So I have a lot of sympathy for the disciples. And I have a lot of sympathy for people who are stuck in false doctrine. And it's important that we, like Jesus, patiently take people step by step through what the Scripture teaches so that they can see what they've gotten wrong in light of the Scripture. It's really important. That's why I want that series written down eventually. It's very important that people can see. And if they don't see, we haven't wasted our time. Because eventually... If God opens eyes, and only God can open eyes, then people will, will have learnt from the lessons that they didn't originally learn from. So the disciples, verse 32, they didn't understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. We, they just don't get it. Where is he getting this stuff from? This is not what we've been taught. This is not what we understand. But the time is still time that Jesus is dedicating to trying to convince the unconvinced, to try and teach the unteachable. And the time will come when the lessons will come to fruition. Now, it's no accident that following this, this second of three times that Jesus teaches them uh, about his uh, death and burial and resurrection, that afterwards, immediately, we have this next story, where they come to Capernaum. They come to Capernaum. Now remember, Capernaum was the, the original base. Um, remember Capernaum, they had a house there for ministry, uh, probably Peter's house where he lived. Remember, this will become relevant in a moment, that we had Peter had a mother-in-law that was healed. So we, we think that Peter may well have been married. And... Uh, they go back to HQ, as it were. And when he was in the house, notice the house, they're back to that same place. He asked them, what were you discussing on the way? So they're coming back, Jesus has been teaching them. And then following that teaching, teaching about the Messiah dying, following that teaching, they have a discussion. And he asks them what they talked about, and they don't say anything. They keep shtum. What do you think that looked like? Hey guys, so what were you talking about back there? Huh? Huh? If you, any of you have had children, particularly as they become teenagers, you, 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 you understand that, that language. That language when they don't want to tell you something, you know? So what about this? That kind of thing. And I get the disciples are a bit like that. Oh, you know, we were just chit-chatting, Jesus, nothing much. 
They don't want to answer. They don't want to talk. They don't want to say anything. Why? Well, it becomes clear. Because on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Sometimes we do stupid stuff. And we know when we do stupid stuff, that the stuff that we're doing is stupid. It's not like they're saying, oh, well, you know what, Jesus, we had a discussion about who was the greatest. Because why wouldn't we? That's a perfectly reasonable thing for us to discuss. They know that it's not a good thing for them to discuss. They knew when they were doing it, it wasn't a good thing for them to discuss. So they don't want to have it addressed, thank you very much. The disciples, as we see in the previous section, had the degree of ignorance where they just simply didn't get it. But here we see there are some things that they do get, but they still don't do. So, they don't answer. So he sits down. Remember, if you remember from chapter 1, if you can go back that far, Jesus sitting down um, is the way in which rabbis would teach. So by Mark telling us he's sitting down, that means it's time for them to have a lesson. So he sits down and he calls the twelve. And he said to them, here's the lesson, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Now first of all, just get the, the scene in your mind's eye. Hey guys, what were you talking about? Oh, Nothing much, you know. They didn't answer him. They kept silent. And Jesus says, well, you know, let's have a chit-chat, then let's sit around. I want you to know this. If anyone will be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. You imagine having a conversation you're embarrassed about, not saying what that conversation was, and then Jesus sitting you down and teaching you how stupid the conversation you've just had is. Whoa! That's shocking, amazing, humiliating, and rather sad, but certainly shocking for them as well. So what Jesus is saying here, and what he's telling them, is this simple lesson. And it's so funny to me that, you know, we never plan, I never plan this stuff, but here we are doing Mark 9 as we've been doing Philippians 2, and everything kind of fits together quite nicely, doesn't it? You know, there's Christ in heaven emptying himself, humbling himself, being obedient unto death, going to the death on the cross, and God exalting him. And here, that lesson that Paul's teaching us in Ephesians, here is the disciples learning that lesson for the first time. This is the, of course, Paul wasn't an apostle at this point, but this is the first teaching, you know, we get that teaching from the apostles, and this is the first teaching of the apostles of that kind of lesson. This idea, and can you see, and this is really what I want us to get, is Mark's flow here. Mark is showing us, look, the disciples are now being taught that Jesus is going to die. So you need to understand that for you who would follow him, you're not following him into the kingdom of glory, you're following him to a cross. So if you want to come after Jesus, you need to deny yourself. Put aside your wants, your goals, your, your, your thirst and desire for glory. You need to take up your own cross, because you may well die, as all but one of them would, for the sake of following Christ. And then you're following him. And so, what are they discussing? They say, hey, which of us is the greatest? Which of us is the best? 
And Jesus says, you've got it completely wrong. Two things, two thoughts on this. Firstly, who is the greatest in that group of 13 people? 12 disciples and their teacher. Absolutely no doubt the greatest, right? Christ is the greatest. Who is the one who is going to be the servant? Who is the one who in this context is going to be last? Who is the one who is going to suffer? Who is the one who is going to be treated worst? Who is the one who is going to not seek after his own things? It's Christ. He's leading the way for them. And so this is the lesson that they have to learn in this advanced discipleship course that Jesus is putting them through. Another thing for us to note is, why does this discussion come up at this point? I mean, here is Jesus saying to them, hey guys, this is what it's going to look like. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, going to get arrested, going to die, going to rise on the third day, just so you know. Heads up. And they're still thinking in terms of the glorious kingdom. And why are they thinking in terms of greatest people and glorious kingdom? Because three of them have just been up a mountain while the other nine were left behind and they saw the glory of the glorious kingdom. That's why. So who is the greatest? Is it the person who gets to see the glory? Is it the person who stands in the pulpit? Is it the person who, people's, who people recognize their name and know who they are? Not in God's kingdom. It's the person behind the scenes who denies himself, who makes sacrifices that nobody else sees. It's the person who humbles himself. It's the per person for whom obedience to God is more important than their own comfort. It's the person for whom pursuing God is the focus of their lives. And if that pursuit of God leads you up a mountain, then so be it. If that pursuit of God leaves you at the bottom of the mountain, then so be it. If that pursuit of God leaves you in the village looking for Jesus who's hiding from you while you need to be healed, then so be it. It's not a kingdom of glory. It's not a kingdom of names. It's not a kingdom of greatness. It's a kingdom of humility where the leader is the one who sacrifices. And we, who are his followers, follow in his footsteps. That's the kind of kingdom we have. And to illustrate this in verse 36, he took a child. I'm fascinated by this, by the way. Oh, look, here's a child just happens to be walking past in the room, in the house, while we're doing a teaching session. Remember, Peter was probably married. Maybe Peter had kids. Maybe this is one of Peter's children. That would be the most obvious thing here. So here he is with young children. And by the way, he's making a sacrifice, isn't he? Leaving his job and leaving his home and following Jesus when he's got children. And his wife is making a sacrifice. Got a mother at home to look after as well as the children, and Peter's off traveling around with Jesus. Could easily be led to bitterness in that situation. But you've got to do what you've got to do, just like Jesus had to train the 12. And 
So they're there back at the house now and Jesus is trying to teach them and one of Peter's kids probably walks through the room and so Jesus grabs him, <laughs> which is nice. Shows a degree of familiarity, doesn't it? I bet you, bet you those kids love Jesus coming back. Ah, oh, Dad's home. Yeah, but Jesus is back with him. Of course they would have done. And so he takes one of the children and ticks him up in his arms and says, whoever receives one, such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now this is one of those verses that you take it out of context and then of course there are those who would completely misrepresent what it's saying. You know, well, you know, following Jesus is all about social justice, you know, just, you know, looking after the, 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 the weak and what have you. I think in the context, Jesus is clearly illustrating a point. The child here, I don't think necessarily means a literal child. And the reason for that is simply this. The context, the argument, is one of who is greatest. It's one of social status. Well, we went up the mountains, so we're obviously the, the top dogs here in this group of 12. And in the group of 12, we're the top dogs over the 70. You know, and those are the top dogs over all the other followers. And, and, and in a sense, you can see there's a logic to that, and there's a truth to that even. But this whole idea of social status, you see, when we think of children, okay, here we are, and a kid comes in the room, oh, look, it's this sweet little kid. That's not how they kind of worked. They kind of worked along the lines of, this kid's insignificant. So we, we see a kid and we say, oh, what a sweet kid, nice kid. Hey, how you doing, kid? And, and, and a child is, is, I think we kind of, in our society, we view them more as an innocent and we like them um, and they're highly valued children. But in, those, in, in that social context, that wasn't the case at all. Tuesday night, study people, that's why social context is important to understanding the Gospels. Because when we understand how they viewed the child, it was like, well, what's that child ever done? Can you imagine us doing that? You know, you're there at someone's house and someone's kids comes in and one, one person says, Oh, this kid is so lovely. You must be so proud of him. He's so wonderful. What a lovely child. Oh, look at those cheeks. How could you not love that kid? And then the other person says, well, What do you mean? That kid's not done anything. He still poops in a diaper. What's he ever done? What's he contributed to society? That would sound terrible to us, really harsh. But that's kind of how they thought. So the ones who went up the mountain were the greatest. The least significant was the child. The child wasn't, had no social standing, had no social status. The child wasn't important. The child wasn't a value. It might become someone of value. The parents will hopefully train the child up to, to do something of significance. That was the point of the family structure. But for now, the child has no social status. It's not important, you know? It's not like a three-year-old kid is going to walk into a bank, put a tie on and say, I want to speak to the manager, I want to open an account, you know. The, the child has no standing, it has no importance. And so what Jesus is doing in that context is he's saying, look, you want to be first, you've got to be last. And you have to serve everyone. You have to serve all. Being great in the kingdom is not about being seen as great. It's about serving. It's not about being above others. It's about being below everyone. Totally countercultural. 
And so Jesus is using the child as an illustration. And it's in the context of his previous... He's illustrating his previous statement. And his previous statement was, if you want to be the greatest, you've got to serve all. So here we go. Conveniently, you've got to serve all. Oh, and look, just at the right time. Here comes a young child. How young? Young enough for him to hold up. That's what we're told he did. He lifts this kid up, probably a toddler. Lifts the kid up and says, look, here's someone of no social standing. Here's someone of no importance. If you receive a child such as this in my name, in other words, for me, in ministry for me, on behalf of me, representing me, if this is the focus of your ministry, then you receive me. You're doing what I want you to do when you serve the little ones. Now, does that have direct application to children's ministry? I think it does. But more importantly and more broadly, what it's saying is this. It's saying that when you are willing to serve Christ, because of course, he did want three of them to go up a mountain. There are those who are the quote-unquote mountaineers of the faith. But we have to be prepared to humble ourselves, to serve all, to, to put aside our own goals, our own aims, our own objectives, and when we do that, when we embrace the low stuff, we embrace Christ. And when we embrace Christ, we embrace God. We embrace the Father. And so he's taking them and he's taking these people who've been brought up in a system, a system that says the Messiah is going to come and he's going to establish his kingdom. And they said, we found the Messiah, we found the Messiah. So who's going who's gonna to get, we're going to see in chapter 10, they're still going to be arguing about who gets to sit next to him in the kingdom. They just don't get it. They don't get the concept of what the kingdom is like. They don't get what it's going to mean to follow Jesus. Oh, they'll get it. They will get it. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Jesus gets arrested, and Peter's like, what on earth is going on? I didn't expect this, other than Jesus taught you this for a long time. And then, are you with Jesus? Says a servant girl. Are you one of his? No, I've never heard of him. Not prepared to take up his cross. They learned the hard way. And I think for us, we need to learn this broad lesson that's being taught here, which is the greatness in the kingdom of God is seen in obedience to Christ, in the serving of others, in the humbling of ourselves, and as we've seen in our Philippian studies, even if nobody else sees it, God sees it. And you know that's a good thing because nobody else is going to exalt you. Oh, they might exalt you in this life, 
Always oh, such a wonderful person. Always oh, so great. Those words will die with those people. The only one that matters is the Father. The only one that matters is God exalting us, lifting us up, or perhaps more accurately, Christ exalting us and lifting us up. Christ saying, well done, good and faithful servant. And that's our job, to be servants of the living God. And we, like the disciples, we don't get it. They thought they were going to be great in the kingdom, and they didn't see the death and the suffering that was immediately in their future. We, as I said this morning, see Christianity and church as just something we do. and We don't see the obedience and the, the servanthood being something that we are committed to pursuing for the sake of Christ, receiving all he gives, the ministry he, can, he calls us to, and all that comes with it. We need to be prepared to humble ourselves and to be last. This lesson is a hard one for them to learn, so he goes on. In this next section, in the next chapter, and I say that that's a good thing for us, because it's a hard lesson for us to learn as well, so we could do with a bit of repetition as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this scripture. May we be prepared to receive all that you call us to receive in your name. Whether it's our humble ministry, an unlauded ministry, whether it's suffering that comes with ministry. But may our desire above all else be to serve you. May we be prepared to do what's right, regardless of circumstances. And may we trust you. May we trust you to do right. No matter how hard life might be, may we trust you to do right. Amen.